This is a podcast where we talk about art supplies. Our aim is to educate and inform and help you become an expert on art supplies. If your job is to sell art supplies, then this podcast will be perfect for you. Or maybe you just want to know more about art supplies, in which case this podcast is still perfect for you. This is the only podcast that deep dives into obscure, scientific and historical fun facts relating to art supplies. If that sounds good to you, then stick around and join us as we all attempt to become art supplies experts. Hello and welcome. This is the Art Supplies Experts. It's a podcast and a YouTube channel. My name is Trevor and with me is Katya. How are you, Katya? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much, Trevor, and thank you for having me. So we've created a podcast here, or we're creating one, and we hope that you'll tune in and listen to it regularly. And the first question we probably have is, what is this podcast about and why should I listen to it? And essentially, we're going to be talking about art materials, fine art materials. We're going to get into the ins and outs and the nitty gritty and explain what somebody who works in an art shop should know about art supplies, what an art teacher should know about art supplies, and a keen artist. And we're going to explain how they work, why they work, and that will help you as an artist and an art teacher and somebody selling art supplies to avoid mistakes and to understand art materials. We're going to try and do it in a fun way so that it's enjoyable to listen to and also delve into a bit of the history of different art supplies. So if you love picking up art supplies, then hopefully we'll add more understanding and more meaning to the world of art supplies for you. So that's our plan. And just as by way of introduction, I work in Australia for a company that's associated with Royal Talons, who's a distributor of fine art materials. And Katya, what's your role at Royal Talons? Well, I'm working, I'm actually an artist working since 2006. I've started as a freelancer artist and then continued my working journey with Royal Talents, becoming a technical advisor more than, I think now it's more than a decade. And what my function is actually, I'm working together with the laboratory that is developing new colors. I'm also visiting art academies all around Europe and I'm working as technical advisor in supporting art stuff or yeah, stuff of art fine material shops all around the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a little my function actually. Yeah. So we just wanted to explain we've got we both got a connection to Royal Talons and some other brands. We're not here to sell any particular brand. The advice no. we're giving is applicable to any brand. And uh, so if there's a conflict of interest at any point, we'll tell you about it. But for the most part, what we're going to be talking about will apply to any brand. So you don't have to worry about us trying to sell you something without declaring a conflict of interest. So the sorts of topics we will get to over time, we'll look at pigments, dyes, binders, mediums, solvents, varnishes. We can look at their their features, their chemistry, their permanence, their toxicity, their history, things like that. But we thought the best topic to start with would be pigments because when you walk into an art shop, there's a lot of pigment, hopefully, and understanding pigments, what they're about, and they're just so essential to art materials. They're really the building blocks of everything. So we'll kick off with pigments. So Katya, what is a pigment and why should we care? 
Well, I think it's, it's very important to know that to create a paint for fine art, fine art paintings, you need, of course, a colored powder that makes it possible to combine with a binder and with a nice surface. Otherwise, it would be impossible to, yeah, to work with a decent paint. So that means the pigments are colored powders that do not dissolve in the liquid with which they are mixed. And these powders, called also pigments or dyes, we are going to see the difference, they have to be regularly mixed and ground in a binder. And the properties of the paint, such as color or the tintening strands, the opacity, transparency, and light fastness, are actually determined, among other things, by the type of pigments that you are using. So it's extremely important that you know if your pigment, for example, is light fast or not. Mm. You yes. mentioned their binders. So, so essentially, if we walk into an art shop, we'll see shelves full of acrylic paint, oil paints, watercolours, gouache. We'll see pastels. And some of those tubes, for example, there'll be a tube of acrylic paint called ultramarine blue. There'll be an oil paint that might be called ultramarine blue. And it might be a watercolour with the same. So the yes. pigment that's used in those can be identical. It's the same colouring material. It's just Absolutely. that the binder is different. So in the yeah. case of watercolour, it's gum arabic is the binder that holds the pigment together, whereas in an oil paint, it's a type of oil, and in a, an acrylic paint, it's some sort of acrylic resin or something. So the same pigments could be used across in different binders to create all different mediums. And here's, let's get some terminology. So, so the binder would be something like what I've just mentioned, oil, gum, Arabic. Yeah. Whereas a medium, what would you understand a medium to be? Well, Katia? the medium actually can be a lot of things. There could be thickening agents, there could be a gel medium, there could be a kind of baton paste that mixed media artists are using for acrylics. That could be also liquid like acrylic medium to thin, or it could be a glazing medium oil. Actually, what is meant with medium is the medium is something that changes the properties of the paint. It could be from thinner to make it thicker, to make that the paint is drying faster or slower. So that's, I've seen sometimes that the difficulty can be if you go to the store and you ask for a medium, that of course the staff of the store are going to ask you what, what are you meaning with a medium because it's a general word where we have mm. to go a little more into detail. Mm. But if you don't mind going back to the binder story because the binder, I think it's for your understanding what you were saying, Trevor is absolutely correct. So it might be the same pigment that are used in, in different uh, techniques of paint, like as you were saying, acrylic, watercolor, or oil. But depending on the binder, you have you get a different paint property. So you have to imagine that to create a paint, you need the pigment or the dyes. Usually in fine art material, they use pigments. And you need a binder to, to mix it together that you will have long-lasting paint. And, and the binder is as important as the pigment. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also very important to, uh, to mention. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about pigments, because they vary in quality, and one of the key aspects, I guess, about pigments that distinguish it from dyes and, and one of the key characteristics that we're looking for with a good pigment as opposed to a bad pigment 
would be light fastness and yeah. essentially whether it's going to fade quickly or not. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And and for this purpose, if we are going to talk about light mass, I think it's also important to talk about the different types of pigments because there are organic pigments that are composed of carbon compounds. They were usually yeah, produced of animal and vegetable origin. Most of them have been replaced by synthetic organic pigments. And maybe you have heard about pigments who are alizarine or azopigments which are the yellow, orange, and red color range, or the, all the phthalo, cyanine, blue and green color range, or the pinacridone. So there were all actually organic, natural pigments because of different reasons, like they were toxic or difficult to get. They have been replaced, like in the 19th century, by synthetic. And there are also inorganic pigments of mineral origins, with metal compounds, for example, oxides. You still can find natural inorganic pigments like umbers and ochres and sienna uh, because they are excavated from the ground and it's still possible to get them, for example, in Italy and other warm countries. So mm. these are, the, just to explain, because sometimes they are asking also in the stores, are they all natural pigments or is there any problems using synthetic? The synthetic actually is as good as natural, even better, because they have been replaced the ones the natural ones were not durable with the time. Mm. Explained well, right? Um, yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. So how do they determine whether a pigment is light fast or fades quickly? I mean, what, what tests are done or how, yeah. and how would somebody know when they're in a shop or looking at a tube of paint that's so, been playing around with? So if you see in the tube, so we are not going, as, as we were mentioning, I'm not going to talk about only about Royal Towns, but I know, of course, the Royal Town system, because I'm working for this company. But most of the other paint producers work with the same system. And so you have to know there is an international English system, the so-called color index. And each pigment is indicated with a pigment name and a pigment number. And this pigment has a, <clears throat> has a certain light fastness certificate let's call it like that so if you see in, in on the tube usually you can see either towns for example at three crosses three crosses means a light fastness of 100 year to infinity or we have pigments like there are some yellow pigments in studio quality paint that we are also going to talk i'm sure in another podcast series they are from 25 years to 100 etc so the light fastness is extremely important to know because you have to know, of course, that the UV light, the natural light is attacking every kind of paint. And the better the pigment that you are using, the better, of course, the light fastness of the paint will be. And so and this is because of this light fast index that is internationally, you can find on the tube the information that you need. Because at some stage, somebody subjected these pigments to extreme light for example, and watch the process to see how much it faded compared to its original state. Is that kind of how they work out that light fastness? Is that right? With yeah, yeah. Well, they have. It's actually the uh, the light fastness rating system system for pigments is the blue wool scale that was the traditional one that they were using. Different, yeah. Let let's let's call on fabric. They were applying the paint and finding out in how much time they were exposing it to the light. 
if the color was fading or not. So that was used for many, many decades. Now it went, of course, more digitally. So it's the ACM internationally. It's kind of, it's known as the American Society for Testing of Materials Rating System. Mm. And they both can classify pigments into different categories based on their light fastness. Yeah. So the light fastener refers to the resistance of the pigments to fading or changing in color when exposed to the light. Mm. So for an artist, I think it's essential to see, yeah, the longevity so, and preservation of the artwork, actually. Mm. So really, for manufacturers of paint, there's nothing to stop them calling a tube of paint any color they want. To some extent, if they're using cheap copy sort of pigments, they could still call, for example, a, a tube, a color ultramarine blue. To, to really know what's inside the tube, you need to look at the list of pigments to see what Absolutely. they've used because sometimes different manufacturers will use different pigments in yep. combination to achieve a colour, maybe using cheaper pigments um, as, a, as a means of trying to achieve a colour in, in a cheap way. So on a good tube of paint by any reputable manufacturer, there should be a list of the pigments that are inside the tube. And if you yeah. don't see that, that's a potential problem. Absolutely. So that's the, the so-called color index I was talking before. So this color index is actually the color index that all main paint manufacturers are using. So you have to think that all the paint manufacturer of fine art material, they are part of an association and also of this color index association. So they are all working with the same index. And for example, if you see on, on the back of the tube, you see very, usually it's very small. You really have to search it. But for example, you see a PV. So what is a P and a V? A big P and a, P, a double W, sorry. That means the white pigments. Maybe you find a PW6, that means it's a titanium white. Or you can find also the PY, it's for the yellow pigments. And then you find the number, for example, PY35, which belongs to the cadmium yellow, etc. So it's very easy actually to understand, like PO, it's for orange, PR, it's for red, PV is violet, PB is blue pigments, PG green. BR is brown and BK is black pigments. So why is this important for an artist? Because for example, let's presume you love a certain brand and the ultramarine is kind of out of stock. So you could check on the old tube if the pigment, which for example would be PB29, is the same pigment that's going to be, in, to be used in Royal Talent so that you will be sure that you're going to use the same pigments. Or you can also find out if a pigment is a monopigment, that means it's just a pure pigment without mixing with white. Or you can find, for example, two numbers. Two numbers means these two pigments are mixed together, grinded together to give you the colors that you find on the tube. Mm. One, one of the was, examples I was yes. reading was that ultramarine blue, PB29, yes. is relatively cheap compared to, say, mm. cobalt blue, which is PB28 which is relatively expensive. And you might find some manufacturers might have a tube of paint that they would call cobalt blue, Mm -hmm. but they would actually use ultramarine blue 
as a cheap pigment yeah. and add some other pigments in there to sort of adjust the colour towards the cobalt. And as an artist, if you're wondering why you're getting strange results or you're trying to replicate something and you're using different brands, then, yeah, have a look at the pigments that are appearing on the tube. And, and Katya, one of the other things I'm told is that it's, in, it's preferable if there's only, you know, one pigment in a tube and not multiple pigments. Well, Why would that? Uh, What's the story there? Well, actually, of course, that's also called monopigment, right? So it's a pigment which, as nowadays, usually it's produced synthetically, as we have heard before. Could be also natural pigment, like in the, yeah, like umber or sienna, etc. But the more it's a unique pigment, the more is the tintinin strands of a pigment is stronger. So the more you mix pigments together, the more you actually well, I'm not saying destroy, but of course, the property of the pigment is going to lose because it's you, you mix it. For example, as soon as you mix it with a white, you lose all this the tintiny strands of a pigment, the force, the vol, the yeah, how how the pigment is going to, yeah. Yes, the power of the pigment Sorry. and the uh, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of the word as well, but uh, yeah. it'll but come to us as we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. For everybody so out there, Katja speaks natively Italian and German. And so, yeah, yeah, and speaks I'm, I'm multiple so languages. And I'm really sorry, yes. <laughs> and I'm Australian, so I only speak one language, which is English. So, I know. Uh, so anyway, no, together but... we'll get there. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting. Look at the tube and see what pigments mm-hmm. are inside. And so, Katja... Why would a brand of paint be cheap compared to another? And I guess while it might say it contains a pigment in it, which is the correct pigment, the question is how much of the pigment is in there and how finely has it been ground and what other things have been put in there as well? All these things affect the final result? Yes. It's it's actually because, for example, you were talking about the cobalt blue, cobalt Mm. blue. And the cobalt blue, you have to think, the cobalt blue, usually the price can exceed 300, I know from euros, 300 euros per kilo. So that means it's an extremely costly pigment. And so it depends on the paint producer or the certain kind of paint you want to achieve. Just let me, uh, let me say it like that. If If we are talking about that, we have to differentiate between artist quality, studio quality, and beginner's quality paint. So, for example, if we are producing the artist fine quality, that means also the paint is going to be more exclusive, it's going to be more expensive as well. We are there using the more exclusive pigments. We are grinding these pigments more finer into these big mills that we have in the factory. Just an example, for example, we put in, in our Rembrandt oil, if we are going to use a cobalt blue, we want to produce our oil paint. And it's going through the mill maybe five or six times. If we want to use for our Van Gogh line, which is a studio line, we this paint, this version, that means the binder and the pigments that have been dispersed in advance are going to pass the mills just two or three times. So and, that's and you would see. Why, you will see the difference. What, why is that? So if it's a smaller because, particle, um, yes. why is that better than a larger particle? Why? Well, because the larger particles usually are, when, when you're grinding them finer, also the light is going to be absorbed differently. 
So mm-hmm. that means that it's going to give you also the, yeah, the, this, as I, I'm calling again, the tintinous strands of the pigments. Yeah. So if the more you grind, the finer you grind it, the more this will show up in, in the way you are painting. So the same goes. That's why all acrylic, all watercolor paint are grinded extremely fine because there you use just a small amount of water or depending how you're, uh, you're working. So therefore you need with the gum arabic extremely fine grinded uh, pigments. Yeah. My, so, my, my understanding is that if it's mm, the smaller particles, then you'll yeah. basically get a smoother surface of pigment Absolutely. with of course, less yeah. with less hills and valleys in it. And if you've got large particles, you'll get more sort of valleys and shadows occurring. So I'm spending some time down at a seaside area at the moment, these mm-hmm. big boulder walls that are built out to the sea with these large rocks that are like one or two metres mm-hmm. across. And if you look at them, In between each of these boulders is a lot of shadow area when you're looking at it. Mm -hmm. And imagine that in terms of pigment where, at at a much smaller scale obviously, but the light falling between the pigments and getting trapped in those edges just detracts from the amount of light that then bounces out. So you don't get the same sort of colour as you would if you have a really fine particle. So that's my understanding about it. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful described. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually what I meant as well. You know, that's the absorbing of the light and give it out again. So, yeah. so that therefore it's very important that you're using for, for yeah. good, fine art quality paint, fine grinded pigments and exclusive ones. So, and those in the, in the cobalt blue, for example, there's also an old history about it. So it, it came from the US actually, and it was extracted from mineral cans. And so what I wanted to say with that is that it has been replaced by a lot of cobalt blue, cold, let me say cold cobalt blue, but in the end, it's not as strong. You know, you see really the difference if you see a good quality cobalt blue pigment and one which is a cheaper one. And do they so, both Do they both have the code of PB28? Would they? No, that, ah. they shouldn't. I mean, that, that's actually, that's the point because... The thing is that they can call, or every paint manufacturer can call their paint how they want. So there is no legacy forbidding you to use this kind of name for the paint. Mm. But they are then not allowed to use the pigment numbers, which should be really in from the index. They can't misrepresent what is in the yes, tube. They can't so they, yeah. yeah, they so can't say it's PB28 when it's something no. else. Yeah, yeah. No, that would be false advertising. Yeah, yeah. Would be false and it's checked. So that's something, but they can call it like they want, unfortunately. Mm. But so, but it's very important that you check the, the paint tubes and see which pigments actually are inside. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't really properly explained the difference between pigments and dyes because if somebody walks into an art shop, there's also going to be a lot of materials that contain dyes. And I know when I've been talking to staff working in art shops, quite often they're not aware, sort of junior staff, of the difference between a pigment and a dye. So maybe, Katya, could you give your explanation of what a dye is compared to a pigment and why people need to know? Yes, I think for you it's very important that we always we talk about coloured uh, powders, right? And this coloured powder, as you were saying, it might be a pigment or it might be a dye. 
Therefore, we need also to differentiate between solution and suspension. A solution, for example, is made by a dye. A dye looks like a powder, looks like a pigment, but it's going to dissolve in a solvent. So, so if you have a solvent and you put this powder into it, it will dissolve like the sugar into the water. So the solute particles are dissolved at the molecular or iconic level, and it gives you a homogeneous mixture. So this is the dye. What is a pigment compared to it? It's an insoluble particle dispersed in a binder. That means um, if you put this pigment into a solvent, it will not dissolve. So that's why you need also a proper binder and a proper pigment to create a stable paint. And a dye is created very easily in a, in a solution, but the light fastness change. So the dyes are in a scale. There are scales. Those are these blue wool scales that I was telling you. And if the scale goes until 10 dye-based paint, it could be an ink, it could be in a marker, will reach maximal five years of light fastness before it's going to be fade, depending on how much it will be exposed into light. And compared to pigments that maybe looks by eye the same, looks also like a colorful powder, but if it's not dissolving in the, in the solvent, so you need also a binder. And these ones starts usually from 25 years to infinity. So, so that's why it's very important that you ask, what kind of paint are you going to buy? Are you going to, to buy a paint which is pigment-based or are you using paint which is dye-based? Yeah. Usually. And, yes, tell me. And, and, and for traditional artwork that people think of, you, you would yes. almost always want a pigment. The places where you'd find a dye would often be in, in various types of marker pens. Coloured marker pens are a typical area where you would find that they use dyes. And one of the reasons is that, that the object of those pens is often for colouring in things mm -hmm. that will end up in a book or in a journal, that will end up in a drawer somewhere and not exposed to sunlight, so it doesn't matter. Or maybe it's going to be for something that's not intended to be permanent and last for a long time. So you might have architectural drawings, plans or things like that where it's really only intended to be held for a few years and most of that time kept in a drawer. And, and sometimes what has happened is artists have discovered those materials and thought, oh, this is great. I'll make some fine art using this product because I love the colours and I love the pens without recognising that the origin of the product was for something that wasn't meant to be hung up on a wall. So, so yeah, thinking typically of something like a Copic marker. So I'm also, one of the things I sell in Australia is Copic markers. And it is, it is a dye-based product. It's dye and alcohol. And it was never intended originally to be used for fine art that would be hung up on a wall. So over time, people have discovered it and they love the colours and I love the way it's used and they've, they've wanted to use it for that purpose. And really the solution is you either have to put it under a UV protective glass, mm -hmm. which will stop the harmful rays reaching the paper, or you have to photocopy it and reproduce it or stick it in a drawer and only bring it out occasionally. 
you know, those are the sort of solutions. And it's not because it was a cheap alternative and a, a cheap sort of answer to a problem. It was just the origins of it was for something completely different and it's being reused in a different way. So in the Royal Talons range, there is now pronunciation here, Katya, Echo Line, Eco Line, yeah, Echo Line, either one. Yeah, which is a which is a dye and a water based binder, and now that's been around since the nineteen thirties. And why was that? Why did they use a dye for that and not a pigment? Do you know why? I think it was also because the Royal Talents uh, traditional first factory that was built in Appledon. Appledon is uh, like one hour by Amsterdam. They were producing ink, so they were knowing already how to produce ink, and the, the fine art paint came afterwards. So I think it's already in the history of Royal Talents. Right. And that remained like that. So that's what you were saying. It's absolutely correct. So you can find that a lot in the inks. But illustrator and hobby art, artists, sometimes the light fast is not that important. But I have, have an, ex, an example of one of my graphic designer friends. He came to Switzerland. We made a painting. He didn't know the difference between dyes and pigments. He was using on the canvas Ecoline and some parts were of Amsterdam acrylic paint, which is pigment based. So, and after three years, actually, everywhere that he used this dye based ink, which is Ecoline, faded, which the part that was painted by acrylic paint remained like the first day. So it's also important that we talk about this difference. And you mm. ask also in the stores. Um, yeah. So a lot of inks, but there are a lot of acrylic inks, for example, they are pigment-based. Yes. There are also markers which are pigment-based. So important that you, that it's usually it's not described on the packaging, unfortunately. I don't know how your, how your opinion, your experience it is with the brands in Australia. Do you find, you know, the difference between a dye and a pigment in the marker, Look, in the packaging? I, I think, yes. I, I think that would... Do you know, I can't really recall. I just, because I'm just so aware of it myself, I haven't looked closely at what the mm -hmm. markings are. So I know, for example, on a Copic pen, it wouldn't say anything about the contents no. in that sense. So it's just up to people to know. Yeah. So that's why we're here, Katya. So we yes. can explain <laughs> to people these things and, Absolutely. Um, and, and make people aware of it and they can ask the questions and understand w why they need to know. So... Let's just go a little bit more and then we'll finish up on this episode. Yes. I think you were keen to talk about toxicity of pigments at one point or yes. was that? Yeah. Yes. Yep. So the thing is with the pigments, of course, is that in the past, like, I'm just, let's take the example of lapis lazuli. Huh? The lapis lazuli is a vibrant blue color and has unique properties. Um, and a lot of notable artists have incorporated lapis lazuli into their artworks. But what was the, um, the problem? The problem was that it was more costly than, for example, gold. And it was difficult to get because you could, you got it from, from Afghanistan. And the same occurs to other pigments that were, yeah, that the artists were using. Like the, the carmine from the cochinellas. I don't know. I'm not sure if this word is properly pronounced. So depending on the animals, they were using the, these pigments. Some were toxic, like the cadmium. Cadmium, yes. A lot have been, a lot have been replaced. 
been replaced by similar synthetic pigments. And I think it's how it should be because in the end, of course, this kind of pigments will be in our water. Yeah. How you call it? Help me with, yeah. uh, you know, with you. Pollute, you polluting yeah. our system yeah, if they're, it out. When they're so disposed of. So most of the pigments have been replaced nowadays, but we have been talking, of course, like a century ago, it was completely different. And many artists were also using the solvents and these toxic pigments, and that was, of course, harming their health. I'm not sure if you want to go more into it's, that it's, toxicity, but... Are there any toxic ones sold now? Should anyone be worried about... No, if you went into no. a normal art shop now, you should be fine. There wouldn't be... You should be fine because... Because, for example, I, well, I can talk about Royal Talents, of course, but I'm pretty sure that also the other competitors are doing the same. But we have to feel, mm. fulfill some European legislation. Yeah, and so that means that if we are not filling these contracts or agreements or whatever, we are not mm. allowed to produce it. So, therefore, I can really say we don't have any toxic pigments. Of course, yeah, mm. so you have always to take care of attention. I'll, I'll... I'll tell one story about the danger of toxic chemicals in an art room, and that is a story that my art teacher told me about a lady who was in an art class, and they had glasses of water on the table to drink, but they also had solvent, clear solvent in glasses as well. And this lady went to take a sip of water and accidentally drank some of the solvent, which looked like water. And she was so embarrassed, she sort of went outside and was was sick in the garden, but didn't really tell anybody for a few minutes because she was just so embarrassed. And it caused her enormous health issues afterwards. So, So just a tip out there to anybody, if you've got drinks that you're having while you're painting, Make sure you use completely different container. Use a, a water bottle yeah. or something, but don't use yeah. something similar to the container that you've got potentially harmful chemicals like solvents in because that was just a really terrible story. So even though pigments themselves are now safe, there are lots of nasty chemicals out there still that you can be using in your artwork. So. Well, Katya, that's enough for a first episode, I reckon. Hopefully people who have listened to this one will have enjoyed it. And because it was the first one and an introductory one, we've sort of been at a somewhat basic level, but getting into the nitty-gritty a little bit. But as we get on to other topics down the track, we'll definitely find information for you that you've never heard of before and interesting facts, interesting information. We'll get into more detail. So subscribe to this podcast and look for us on YouTube, and hopefully wherever you're finding this, there'll be some information in some notes and things like that where you can get hold of us. And uh, so for the moment, that's the end of our first episode. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be with you again at another time soon, hopefully. So bye for now. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want more information about the episode or this podcast, you can look at the show notes, and there will be information there. There will also be information about how to contact us, give us some feedback, ask us some questions, maybe correct us if we've made a mistake. If you really like the show and you want to help us, then the best way to do that is to tell your friends, the people you think might be interested in this podcast, 
tell them about the podcast, get them to subscribe, pass the word around. That really is the best way to promote a podcast is by word of mouth. And if you'd like to help us, that's the best way you can do it. Okay, until next time, bye for now.